The Real Investment Show. And good morning. Welcome to the show. It's Technically Speaking Tuesday. That is the article that's out on our website today right now talking about really the markets from a bullish perspective and a bearish perspective. So kind of no matter what angle you want to kind of look at it, um, we kind of look at some of the bullish aspects of the market as we're moving into the seasonally strong time of the year. But of course, also there remains risk as always because it's an equity market and there's risk in equity markets. So that article is out on the website this morning talking about how to navigate this type of market because as we'll talk about in the next segment when I uh, when we come back from the break, we'll talk about an email I got and kind of one of the conundrums that a lot of investors have right now with this market. It's just, um, you know, kind of from a fundamental basis, it's hard to struggle with valuations, but yet there's still lots of bullish kind of positive attributes to the markets that's going on right now. And that dichotomy can make it a bit hard for individuals to invest their capital, right? They just kind of get unsure about it. So we'll talk about how to approach the market from that aspect and how to deal with the short-term issues of the market relative to long-term uh, issues that don't necessarily agree with each other. Um, very quick, yesterday, of course, we talked about the first Bitcoin ETF uh, has gotten approved by the SEC. That's going to be launching here shortly. Bitcoin futures yesterday rallying sharply. Bitcoin over $61,000 uh, uh, a coin yesterday. So a uh, big rally in Bitcoin just, you know, a couple of months ago. We're talking about Bitcoin at $30,000. So, you know, almost a doubling, actually more than a doubling of Bitcoin in just a few months. So, Again, that's been on the tear here as of late. Of course, uh, that ETF certainly kind of opens up the door now for more investors to participate with cryptocurrencies without actually having to buy cryptocurrencies, right? Set up the wallet and all this other stuff you got to do. You can just buy the ETF now and participate in the rise and fall of Bitcoin as it occurs. <laughs> so again, volatility is something that is going to be a friend of Bitcoin. Now, one of the questions I got yesterday was about the ETF in particular, because it is different. Um, when you buy the ETF, this particular ETF that's being issued out by ProFunds, it is a bit different than, than buying actual Bitcoin, because this is the futures on Bitcoin. So options contracts on Bitcoin. So basically there's a lot more leverage. There'll be higher volatility. There is risk um, in owning the ETF. So just kind of be aware of what you're buying if you're going to buy the ETF and, and try to, you know, kind of play the, the cryptocurrency game. It's completely fine. Uh, just realize you don't actually own Bitcoin. You own contracts for the futures of Bitcoin. If that makes any sense to you at all, <laughs> you'll understand it. But that's what you get when you get the ETF. So just be aware of what you're getting into. So a couple of things here that uh, bigger pictures as we do move into the end of the year. The Treasury cash balances right now are getting exceedingly low. In fact, uh, just you know, recently, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was talking about the fact that, well, if we don't raise the debt ceiling and do a continuing resolution, the government may default on its debt because it's running out of cash. Well, that temporary raise of the debt ceiling, we're eating up very rapidly with spending that we're doing in government. And December the 3rd, we're going to be right back in the same problem again, but yet Treasury cash balances have not improved very much at all. In fact, they're now at kind of the lowest level they've been here in quite some time. So again, the real risk for the government going into the end of the year is another big debt ceiling debate. That's, this is some of the risks that are out there that could roil the markets moving into the end of the year, right? This whole debt ceiling debate issue. Uh, the Democrats also in really kind of a tough position here. 
there have been a rising number of Democrats that are now retiring from office um, heading into the midterm elections next year. They're facing very tough elections, uh, deciding to say, hey, we're just going to set down. We're not going to seek re-election in 2022. Of course, the margin is fairly narrow in the House. Uh, it's about an eight-seat margin uh, for the Democrats right now, 220 seats to 212 seats. So again, that margin is going to be under challenge. And historics, uh, you know, looking back at his history and looking at historical statistics, normally when you have the pow- the party in power, where it's the president, it is the Senate, and it is the House, all in power at the same time, they typically don't last very long. In fact, historical tendencies suggest that the Democrats will lose at least one or both houses come 2022. So why is this important? Well, this has everything to do with the spending bill that the Democrats want to get through. And again, one of the issues that have been supporting the markets and supporting a lot of the economic growth that we've seen over the last year, 2020 and now into 2021, has been this very big influx of liquidity coming from government spending programs. Now, previously, a lot of that spending went directly to households and and the forms of checks to households, those $1,400 checks. That immediately found its way into the economy, people spending it to go out and buy new appliances or TVs or whatever they did with it. Now, though, we're talking about a very different type of spending, which is a spending spread out over 10 years. Um, And it's also in the form of smaller payments to households um, through things like child care increases and benefits, Medicare, Medicaid benefits, etc. So won't have the exact same impact and won't have that immediacy impact to the economy, particularly in an economy with higher rates. The problem for the Democrats, though, right now going into the end of the year is having to battle over this debt ceiling and trying to get their own party behind passing this bill. It now looks like this infrastructure bill that was passed on a bipartisan basis is in deep trouble, may not get passed, and now that may even put in jeopardy passing any type of other type of spending bill that the Democrats want to get passed before the end of the year. So again, we may not see any more type of governmental liquidity support before year end. We may get well into next year before we actually see any type of bill really get formed and come to the table. And then the problem there becomes for the Democrats is re-election. A lot of these states, we've talked about this before, a lot of the states that elected Democrats in the last election were previously red states that elected Democratic senators and representatives. That may not be the case coming this this fall, so uh, this next fall. So again, there's a lot of risk here to the Democrats. You're seeing uh, uh, several Democrats now starting, uh, kind of long, long-running Democrats, retiring from office Uh, This is going to put the House and uh, particularly in jeopardy. And the Senate is such a close tie right now. It won't take but one or two seats to turn over there as well. So, again, there's a real risk here. We may not see more liquidity. And the point about that is we've got markets that have been basically dependent on a lot of liquidity inflows over the last year to support valuations support the inflows into markets and a lot of individuals were taking money they were getting from the government retail investors were spending were investing that capital uh, through companies like Robinhood and online brokerage firms etc that is now all starting to reverse in a big way so so again one of the risks to the markets as we get into next year is going to be a disappointment of economic growth and as we've said before there's a very high correlation 
between economic growth and earnings. And while we're in earnings season right now, this is the tail end of what is likely to be the best of earnings growth that we're gonna see here in the near term. In fact, rates of, of earnings growth as we get into 2022 will likely be substantially slower. That's gonna put valuations at risk. That'll put markets at more risk as we get into next year. Uh, these are some of the things that we though that we cover in today's Technically Speaking report. We'll talk more about how to navigate all this when we come back from the break because there are some basic rules to follow and we'll certainly get into those. So don't go away, more of The Real Investment Show coming right up after the break. Don't go away. Right now in the short term, markets are back to being in bull mode, right? So we had this uh, this kind of run at the beginning of the year, very unprecedented, very long without a 5% correction. We talked about this in, in the show numerous times. Well, we've now had that 5% correction. Sentiment got fairly negative um, in a very short term. It took about a month. People got very negative on markets. And so now we're kind of getting back into rally mode. Uh, yesterday, we not we kind of retested the 50-day moving average early in the morning, bounced off of that, and closed up nicely in the afternoons. So again, that's the type of bullish action that you that you want to see um, in the markets short term, right? That's that's positive, and so that suggests that basically we can can kind of continue to see this bullish advance here at least over the next you know couple of weeks or so. So. This is all very short-term stuff, mind you. Longer term, I don't disagree, right? There's lots of problems longer term. Earnings, valuations, economic growth, the debt, um, deficits, lots of arguments. Valuations are your biggest problem long term. Price to sales, price to earnings, no matter how you cut it, we're pushing you know, at records or near records of valuations there, which suggests that over the next decade, as we've talked about before, that returns on equities will be very low, if not negative. Now, got to have a bit of clarification here, though, because this is one of the misnomers that occurs often, is that when you hear this, is like, oh my gosh, why would I invest now? Because... Earnings will be negative over the next 10 years. That's very possibly true. But that doesn't mean that every year will be negative. And that's the part that people miss when we talk about valuations and we talk about deviations from norms, etc. It's not every year that'll be negative. It'll be one or two years where markets are very negative. And then when you add up the entire return profile for the next 10 years, it'll be flat to negative. Very much like we saw back from 2000, uh, from 2000 to 2013, that 13-year period on a real inflation-adjusted basis was zero. And that was because we were working off, you know, exceedingly high valuations from the dot-com era and it took 13 years to do that. Well, here we are back to basically the same levels of valuations that we were back in 1999, just a little bit lower, not quite as high, but still excessively overvalued, which suggests that over the next 10 years, we will see another period where returns will be low because we're probably going to have at some point a fairly decent mean reverting event. Now, I know that seems to be impossible because we haven't had one in the last 12 years, 13 years. But it is possible. 
And the longer that we go without one, the more possible it becomes, right? It's just a function of time. Whether, whether you have a mean reverting event next year, year after, the year after, it doesn't matter when it occurs. It's just a function of time until it occurs. And we'll eventually go through this, this dynamic of reversion, but that doesn't mean that you shouldn't invest. So this is kind of the whole point of our article today that's on the website, and it's the bullish and bearish market case. One of the questions that I get a lot, look, Danny and I have talked about this on the show before, is that we have people come to us often that say, you know, well, I've been out of the market since 2008. I did a great job. I got out of the market in 2007 and I missed the whole downturn and maybe I should get back in now. Well, it's 12 years later, the market's up 400%. Now you want to start getting back in. You know, and this is the problem with a lot of investors is they can do a good job of, avoiding the downturns, the hard part is putting money back to work. And this is the the challenge that a lot of people face because it's the worry that I might invest and be wrong versus just managing the market for what it is. And again, it's also the the construing of time periods. Again, as I just said a minute ago, if you look over the next decade, returns are not going to be great. So why should I invest? Because a lot of those years will be positive and you can make money in the markets. You just have to be aware of the risk of a bigger downturn and be sure and navigate that downturn to some degree. It doesn't mean that you've got to be all in or all out. It doesn't mean you have to time it perfectly. But this is why we talk often about increasing and reducing risk in portfolios. It's not a light switch. Portfolio management isn't being all in or being all out. That's market timing, and it's impossible to do on a consistent basis. You may get it right a couple of times, but eventually at some point you're going to get on the wrong side of the trade and you'll lose a lot of money. That's just a function of how market timing works because you're trying to be all in or all out. And that while it seems to make some sense, and again, there's certainly an ability to do that, just being successful at it's the problem. It's not the best way to manage money over time. And this is why we talk about increasing and reducing risk. So as we talked about back in July and August, we were worried about the downturn of the market. So we raised cash. We sold some of our positions. We raised a bit of cash. We added some hedges to our portfolio. We added a little bit more on our fixed income side to help potentially hedge against the downside draw. So when the draw came and the markets were down, you know, 5% or so, the portfolio was down one, one and a half. So it didn't have to, to deal with the decline that we had in the markets. And because the portfolio had lower volatility because of the reduced risk, we were able to just kind of navigate that period without having to panic sell and make big decisions very quickly because we were getting behind the curve. So, so again, being a little bit cautious can help avoid those downturns. Now, does it mean that you completely avoid the downturn? No. And trying to completely avoid the downturn is going to lead you to eventually missing the upswing. Because, again, 
it's a function that you may get one half of that trade right. The, the problem is trying to get both halves of that trade right. That becomes where it's more problematic because once the markets are down, you know, you get out of the markets, the markets are down 5%. You now assume the markets are going to go down 10%. So you don't do anything. And then the market starts rallying. And then you say, well, the market's just bouncing here. And then it's going to go lower. So you don't do anything. And then the market keeps rallying. And you go, well, it's really going to crash back down to its lows now or go lower. So I'm not going to do anything. And then eventually you're back to all-time highs. And it's like, well, it's too late to do anything now. So I'll just wait for the next correction. And this is the psychological cycle that we go through as investors. And that's why it's very hard, it's very difficult to be all in or all out in that type of environment. But if I just reduce my risk, then I can sit there and say, okay, look, I'm seeing the market recover. The positions I still have left in my portfolio are starting to recover with the markets. And now I just add back to them. And psychologically, it's a much easier way to put money back to work into the markets rather than trying to go from zero to something. It's easier to go from something to something more than to go from zero to something, just psychologically speaking. So this is kind of the point. You know, when we look at where the markets are right now, the short-term bullish cycle is clearly intact, right? We've gotten above resistance levels on the markets. Um, sentiment has got negative last month. That's starting to improve here. Money flows are picking up. We're about to enter into the big kind of uh, seasonal stock buyback period for corporations. Their windows are going to open up November the 1st. So it's just in the next week or two. And they're going to start buying back their stock. That'll help support markets short term. And we're moving into the seasonally strong period of the year. So October, November, December tend to be fairly good months. So we certainly want to try to participate with that. But again, I don't want to dismiss the longer-term picture. Inflation's a problem. Stagflation's a problem for companies. It's a problem for their earnings. Corporate profit margins are at risk. The Fed's about to start tapering the balance sheet. That's a problem for the markets. So there's certainly things that are about to start to occur as we get into 2022 that can certainly weigh on markets. And so while we may have a short-term bounce in the markets and we may have a short-term rally in the markets, trying to say, well, the rally's back and we're just going to keep going up from here, that's a bit of a stretch. But again, trying to predict what the markets are going to do is just as problematic. So one thing that we talk about a lot on the show and we've written about before is that as investors, our job is not to predict the markets. Our job is to manage what the market does. And what I mean by that is, is that allow the market to tell you what it's doing and then respond appropriately rather than trying to guess at it. You know, we can all try to guess at where, where the market will be at the end of the week, and half of us will get it right and half of us will go wrong. That's just statistics. But instead of trying to guess at it and take that risk of being wrong and being on the wrong side of the trade, the better thing to do is just to let the markets tell you. And that's what we, we were doing back in August. We were saying, hey, just reduce a little bit of risk here. Statistics tell us that we should have a correction. Now, we had no way of knowing that we would have the correction, but statistically, the odds were in our favor 
that a correction would occur. So taking some money off the table in terms of, you know, betting on a, a hand of poker, taking some of our money off the table, reducing our bet size, et cetera, allowed us to weather that downturn. And now we have those extra chips that we can put back to work in the market, which we've been doing over the last couple of weeks. But in the article today, I kind of go through the guidelines to kind of follow. Just move slowly. You don't have to do anything in a big hurry. If you're overweight or underweight equities, don't try to make those changes all at once. Small steps. You win games by inches in football, by singles in baseball. No matter what sports metaphor you want to do, it's the small moves that make the biggest difference. Be right back after the break. I'm getting a lot of emails right now um, as we've started talking about putting capital back to work in the markets. Like, are you crazy? Have you looked at valuations? Have you looked at the Fed? The Fed's about to start tapering. Yeah, I get all that, right? And, and again, those are concerns that we're very aware of and it's something that we're watching very closely. But right now, at the moment, the second we're coming out of a, a correctional period, the markets, there is the technical biases of the markets, which are bullish at the moment, which suggests that we need to put some capital to work and make some money. That's it. It's not anything more than that. Our job is not to, as I was saying, you know, in the last segment, our job is not to try to predict what the markets are going to do. That's where we go wrong. Our job is simply just to respond to what the markets are doing and invest accordingly. Let me, let me put it in, in terms of poker for a second. Maybe this will, since a lot of people understand the game of poker to some degree, blackjack, it doesn't matter, right? It's like sitting at a, a blackjack or a, or a poker table and saying, well, I'm not going to bet on this hand, even though I've got a full house. I'm not going to bet on this hand because I'm probably going to lose five hands from now. That's, that's the market, Right. If we worry about what's going to happen a month or two months or three months or six months from now, we're not going to invest. Even though we've got a fairly decent hand sitting in front of us right now that we can make some money with. And this is the, 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 the challenge that investors psychologically go through because they're worried about losing money. And that's a, that's a very valid and warranted concern. Nothing wrong with worrying about losing money. That's what you should do um, when it comes to investing in the markets. Nobody likes losing money. We've all done it. I've lost money. You've lost money. Everybody's lost money. But the goal is not to do it more than you win. <laughs> the problem that we face, though, is allowing what we worry about to affect what we should be doing in the near term today. And again, if I've got a good a good poker hand, I need to bet on what the poker hand I have is now, not the one I might have five hands from now or 10 hands from now. We're eventually going to lose if we play poker long enough. So it's important to know when we can bet. And as Kenny Rogers once said, you know, know when to hold them, know when to fold them, right? So that's, that's really what this comes down to in the market. So it's important... As I was saying, and again, this is, if you go to our website, the article on the website for today, our Technically Speaking post, kind of lays out some, some basic rules to just kind of follow some guidelines to adjust your portfolio for what's happening now and what might happen down the road. And we can make those changes. We're not locked in because, well, you know, because I bought stocks, 
doesn't mean I can't sell them. Investors come up, and in, in, I shouldn't say investors, individuals come up with all kinds of the most crazy things about stock investing. I bought it, I can't sell it. I, I, I bought this, I can't sell it at a loss. You know, I, I, if I sell it at a gain, I've got to pay taxes. Those are stupid reasons. <laughs> so it's important to understand is like you made an investment, manage the investment for what it is, just like you bet on a, a hand of poker. Right. If you've got a good hand, you bet a little bit more. If you have a, a bad hand, you don't you, you don't bet or you bet very little. You adjust your risk accordingly. That's that's just the simple fact of it. Okay, let's talk about a couple other things. So climate change is one of these now government driven programs that has attached itself to every country in the world, except for countries like China, India, Indonesia, who are continuing to pollute to the you know nth degree because they're not willing to sacrifice the growth of their economies. Every other major country is willing to sacrifice the growth of their economy. And we talked about this fact that there's a recent report out that looking at the cost of fighting climate change is $150 trillion dollars. Of course, that can only come from one place. Now, mind you, the, the total global economy is only about $55 trillion. So you're talking about spending more than three times of the entire world economy to fight climate change, to do all these things that we want to do. And whether you agree with that or not is irrelevant. It's just that's the plan, right? This is, this is the goal to get to net zero around the world is that it's going to cost roughly $150 trillion. Well, that's all got to come from somewhere. And if your economy is $55 trillion, $150 trillion of additional spending has to come from only one place, and that's from debt issuance. Bank of America out with a report this week talking about the problems with this idea. First of all, you're talking about inflation running anywhere from 1% to 3% even hotter than it is now. So again, you know, when you take a look at the economy currently, we're dependent upon very low rates of inflation and very low rates of interest in order to keep the economy kind of chugging along here at 2% growth. And this has been the case now for over a decade, for over two decades. We've been chugging along here about 2% growth and that's dependent because of all the debt that we've currently taken on. We've got to maintain these low interest rates in order to support, you know, home prices and consumer spending, and which is all based on debt. I mean, every facet of the economy is driven by some form of debt. Low interest rates is what keeps zombie companies in business because they can refinance cheaply to stay in business when they, in effect, should be going out of business. So if you tack on 1% to 3% more in inflation because of this money printing, which, by the way, if you're going to print $150 trillion in a, in a $55 trillion global economy, you're not going to get 3% inflation. You're going to get 5 That's just a function of math. If you get that type of inflation... Wages can't keep up with that growth. Earnings can't keep up with that growth. So you're talking about a substantially lower asset market. 
like 50% lower. Talking about interest rates going up, of course, and as soon as that happens, your economic growth is going to be is, is going to be zero to negative for a very extended period of time. Because one of the big problems is going to be, you know, the staffing up, as as they say, of the employment problem. So we're going to create all these new green energy jobs, et cetera, so forth and so on. But you've got there's only so many people in the economy. And we're near full employment now, according to official statistics. So where are you going to get the extra people that you need to fill all these green jobs? We can steal them from other industries, right? So that's great. People can stop working in whatever manufacturing or service job they're doing now, and they can all go work in the green energy sector. Sounds great. The problem is, is those jobs that they have right now are also very important to the current economy, right? It's where you, it's your, you know, local dry cleaners, it's your local grocery stores, it's your, it's your local gas stations. It's all the things that you depend upon on a daily basis. Those workers are working those jobs. And if we take all of them and make them and move them over to green energy jobs, that's great. We've got green energy, but we, now we don't have anybody to provide the basic essential services that we need in the rest of the economy. And again, the problem becomes is that you've got way more demand for jobs theoretically in this $150 trillion adventure than you've got people to fill those jobs, which drives up cost. Inflation, interest rates, all these to very slow economic growth down the road. So the transition to a net zero economy, and Bank of America has this right in their article, is talking about the fact that the approach, while noble, nothing wrong with it, right, has to be well thought out and has to be done at a very slow pace in order to keep from disrupting the economy. And then again, of course, trying to add $150 trillion of new debt, three times the size of the economy, global economy, is going to be problematic. Somebody's got to buy the debt. The debt's not free. Central banks can certainly absorb that debt, but at some point, somebody's got to pay the tab, and that money has to come from somewhere. And again, yes, we've certainly gotten this idea that we can just print money for the sake of printing money, but there's a real problem with that longer term because the velocity of money, how fast that money moves through the system, is declining sharply the more debt that we bring on in the economy. And this is why, despite, you know, hopes that we're going to continue to get stronger rates of economic growth this year as a good example, coming out of 2019, 2020, getting into 2021, economic growth was, was picking up speed. And then uh, we had the pandemic shutdown. Recession, not surprising. But we were supposed to have rates of growth this year of 8% annualized. Second quarter growth came in at 6.5, which was 50% of what previous expectations were. We're now talking about 1.3% growth, 1.2% growth in the third quarter, well, well below what was expected as the debt and deficits are now starting to reanimate themselves in 
slower economic growth. That's the problem with all this. It's all a great concept, but you can't fund it out of debt. Be right back after the break. You know, talking about this idea of $150 trillion to solve climate change. Again, it's a great and noble goal. The problem with debt is always the same thing, is that somebody's got to pay for it. And the more debt you have, the slower economic growth you're going to have and the greater wealth inequality you're going to have. So all the problems that you currently have now will only be exacerbated as you go further and further into this endeavor to solve climate change through debt issuance. You know, this is one of those things that comes back. You know, you can say, look, I believe in climate change. And we're talking about this with ESG investing as well, right? So environmental, social, and governance, you want to invest in companies that believe in climate change. That's awesome. You can do that. But you buying shares on the open market does nothing to solve climate change. If you think Apple is a good example, just picking a stock, you know, you think Apple's a company that that is in the forefront of environmental social governance change, right? So they manufacture phones, they strip mine the planet for the lithium and the things that go into the phone. But you know, hey, it's all good. Don't worry about it. Got people jumping out of buildings in China from punching chips onto <laughs> to a semiconductor pad. It's completely fine if you believe that Apple is on the forefront of social change, but you buying your shares of stock, in other words, when you go to the market, all you're doing is buying your shares from Brent. Brent now has your cash. You have Brent's shares of Apple. Apple doesn't make any changes because they don't even know you exist. And that transaction has occurred. So that doesn't solve climate. Environmental investing doesn't solve climate change. What would solve it from an investing standpoint is you going out and finding a, a company, a group, a person that has a really great idea to solve some aspect of climate change. Giving him money to start his business to create this product, good, or service, that would ultimately disrupt or change or create a potential for a better climate environment. That is how you invest. You do it through a private basis. You invest in these technologies when they're early stage. That's where you make the difference. But that comes back to this, the, to the other aspect of this. What governments can't do is they can take a lot of debt, right? They can make policy, but they can't affect climate change. That's what capitalism does. So the best thing to do is instead of going to $150 trillion worth of debt to solve climate change is to tap onto the private marketplace and say, look, if you come up with solutions for climate change, we'll give you tax credits. We'll, we'll help you. Allow the private market to do what they do best, which is to innovate, to solve these changes. And then again, here's a good example of this, right? Reuters came up with this conclusion um, European unions figuring it out is politicians were very blinded by the agenda of trying to fix climate change. So it's great. Let's, let's all go, go to EVs, right? We'll all be in electric vehicles. That's great. That's fantastic. Let's all drive electric vehicles because that'll help solve climate change. Well, the problem is, is that the carbon footprint of a electric vehicle is about the same as a gas powered vehicle. 
because of what is involved in making the batteries and building the cars and the petroleum that's required for all the plastics in the car, et cetera. So that's one aspect. But the other aspect is that now you've got to create charging stations everywhere. Where does the electricity come from? What we're finding out now is that uh, wind power and solar power doesn't really work all that well. It's not nearly as efficient enough to fill the demand that you'll have for electricity. So now countries that have been pulling back on coal power having problems with electricity. Surprise. So the, the point here is that you can solve the issue of climate change, but you have to do it logically in terms of approaching it. And you've got to understand, well, if I'm going to do A, before I do A and require everybody to drive an electric vehicle, we got to make sure that we have a charging system set up and that we can actually supply the electricity to fill this charging system for all these electric vehicles. And so you've got to build this in steps as you do it. And it's going to take a long time. But it's just the process that you've got to go through to be successful at the end of the goal. Because otherwise, what you wind up with is a lot of debt, raging inflation, slower economic growth, and a lot of other problems that you don't want to deal with. And that's the part that we've kind of just looked over here. And despite the fact that we're all trying to move in this direction, this is the one thing China's not gotten sucked into yet. Because they're going, we're looking out 50 years and going, what do we do to make our economy stronger 50 years from now? That's why they're curtailing individuals, their, their youth, from using social media. That's why they're curtailing the time that their youth can spend playing video games. They want to make their, product, their economy much more productive. And, and they are out there making these decisions. And they're not going in on this whole climate change apparatus because they understand that, they, that they've got to grow their economy. And that requires an immense consumption of power to do it. And that's what they're doing. So, you know, we always worry, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to, to hear the political, you know, kind of diatribes like, you know, China's, you know, going to overtake the world as, as an economic power. Yeah, they are because they're not doing things that impair their economic growth, like going into massive amounts of debt. And despite the fact that we keep, you know, there's tons of articles being written right now, you know, expanding the welfare network, expanding childcare. This is all going to help people and it's going to be great and give people more time to do stuff that they want to do. It sounds great to give people money. The problem is, is the money's generated from debt. Debt has a negative deterrent to economic growth, ultimately, because it's got to be paid for. And that what we also forget is that because we give people more money this year, they are back to being just as poor as they were next year because of inflation. So whatever more money you give them, that's fine. Inflation is going to erase it. The cost of living will go up. I want to give people more money for childcare so they have the ability to do whatever they want to do work-wise. Sounds awesome. Childcare was, you know, $1,000 a month last year. It's now $1,500 a month this year inflation. Why? Because childcare providers know that, hey, you're getting more money. I'm going to charge more for my service. That's just the way, that's the way economics works. 
So if you want to give people more money for childcare, you've got to start, as we do with Social Security, you've got to start adjusting those payments every year for inflation. But even that won't keep up with the real cost of living. This is why if you take a look at even a vast majority of our seniors that live on Social Security, they're near poverty lines in a lot of cases because the cost of Social Security doesn't keep up. Yes, we're making you know annual adjustments for CPI, but CPI and the real cost of living are vastly different. So these are the things that we deal with, but this is the this is the problem, and we've talked about this before on the show. Is this is the problem with government intervention because there, there's it's a blunt hammer to try to solve problems. The only two ways that they can solve a problem is to pass a law, right, or a policy or a bill, and issue debt to try to spend money. But as we know from years of watching them do this, the last forty years of of them you know, watching, you know, the issuance of debt to spend money in the economy is that there is a negative multiplier effect of government spending, but you're simply recycling tax dollars. You're taking money from one person to give it to another person, which means that the person that had the money is spending less. And now the person that got the money is spending a little bit more, but it's a net zero. And because the person you took money from tends to spend, you know, larger sums of money, because we have to tax the rich, right? We've got to we've got to tax the rich more. So the more money we take from them, they're the ones that are buying your bigger ticket items in the economy. They're the ones that create a, a big bunch of your activity. They're the ones creating businesses. If I take money, more money away from them, they have less propensity to spend in the economy. The the lower end of the population that receives the benefit, they're already living paycheck to paycheck. Their consumption doesn't increase markedly. So you decrease consumption at the upper end, but you don't really increase consumption much at the lower end because they're already living paycheck to paycheck. So your economic growth weakens, and that's why you have a negative multiplier effect of government spending. It sounds great in theory. We're going to help all these people. But the reality is, is that never actually works out that way. Because the economic effects of the way that we move money through the system doesn't work the way people believe it works. Or at least I should say, doesn't work the way economists think it should work because of human behavior. You know, as we talked about recently, one of the thoughts of economists were is that if we gave people more money to, to you know, help them pay bills at home while they're unemployed, that'll give them more time to look for a job. And what we found out was is that, no, they just stayed home and collected the money and didn't look for a job. <laughs> that's human behavior. And that's the one thing economists tend to miss. But that's, that's you know, this is going to be the problem going forward is that do we need to solve climate change? Sure, absolutely. Is $150 trillion in debt the way to do it? Probably not. And the economic consequences will make the solution not work. Wraps up the show for the day. I'm Real Saints Roberts. Markets are looking to open up this morning, about 170 points on the Dow, kind of a follow-through from yesterday's rally. Again, moving into the end of the year, we're in that seasonally strong period of the year. We're going to make a run here at all-time highs. Keep a watch on your portfolios. Though. Risk are you know, mounting as we get towards the end of the year. 
our Technically Speaking post today on the website covers how to navigate the markets from now through the end of the year with all the stuff that's out there, all the stuff that's going on. We go through the bullish and the bearish arguments today on our Technically Speaking post on the website, realinvestmentadvice.com. See you back here tomorrow. It's a rich man's world. It's a rich man's world.